following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. So you have your Bibles tonight, Galatians chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 19. We run across a list here uh, that the Apostle Paul uh, expounds upon. Uh, In this context, remember, he is writing a letter to a church that he has been involved with. Uh, All along, he has been warning them about the Judaizers uh, who are stressing the adherence to the law and salvation through the law. He's been battling that. And um, as we started this study, I I want to remind you uh, something that we talked about when we first started looking at it. The whole purpose of going through this book is to equip you in engaging in conversations with others. Uh, We've used the term apologetics quite often, which is nothing but a defense of your belief. And so as we get into the list, there's some other um, elements I want to talk about as far as biblical interpretation. Uh, Those of you who like to write things down and take notes, I'm going to give you a little list here of things that you can look for. Uh, hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? It's the knowledge of interpretation. It's how to break down a passage, a book, uh, or a verse and look at it word by word, line by line. Uh, some key elements that you look for. Uh, we've talked often about repetition of words, how a writer may use uh, one word over and over and over again to really emphasize a point. So here's some other things that you can look at uh, as you are trying to interpret a passage or a letter such as we are doing, or a book of the Bible. Uh, Contrasts, comparison, cause and effect, uh, kind of an if-then statement. You know, if this happens, then this is going to happen. Figures of speech. uh, Is the writer being literal, or is he being figurative when he presents something? Uh, Conjunctions, when they're trying to bring a phrase together. Uh, Also, of course, you look at verbs and pronouns. Why are they used? How are they used? Questions and answers. When a writer asks a rhetorical question and then answers it himself, uh, why is he doing that? Conditional clauses. If you don't do this, then this is going to happen. Uh, When he writes about the actions or the roles of God himself, Uh, What is he trying to describe there? When he talks about the actions or roles of people, which is what we're going to get into tonight, uh, what is he trying to point out for that certain group of people? Also, something you need to look at is the tone of the passage. That's one thing that always baffles me. It's really kind of hard. I I think sometimes uh, you may think it's one tone and somebody else may consider it to be another tone that the writer is using. When someone writes something out, it's kind of hard to express uh, their emotion, uh, the tone that they're trying to use. Uh, That's what I dislike about emails and text messages. I know our culture has gone bonkers over sending text messages. They don't like to call each other. (laughs) Nobody likes to use the phone anymore to talk to people. They like to send text messages and emails but it's real, real hard to express. Are you sorrowful? Are you angry? Are you happy? Sometimes it's really hard to express tone 
uh, in just writing letters and words down. So I think the Apostle Paul shifts his tone here. Uh, earlier in this particular passage, he was talking about love and how the actual indication of the fulfillment of the law is love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself in specific. So then he seems to to change the tone just a little bit. He gets more of a very, very serious kind of up in your grill, up in your face tone as he gets into these lists here. So when you look at a list like this, how do you break it down? How do you study it? How do you analyze it? So we're going to be looking at this list probably over the next few weeks. We're going to look at each and every uh, work of the flesh that he is listing here. And we're going to compare it to what he was talking about in that culture, how it applies to our culture today. You're going to see a lot, a lot of similarities between what's going on at the time the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and what's going on in our culture today. And so that old saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The same thing that the Apostle Paul was dealing with back then, we are dealing with now. So why would he give this very specific list? He's also making a comparison and a contrast. So the contrast here is the works of the flesh, against the fruits of the Spirit. We covered that last week when we were talking about walking in the Spirit. And the uh, contrast he makes is walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So lists are used quite often, especially when it talks about sins that are apparent and evident as he is revealing tonight. Uh, Jesus used a list in Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a man, what defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Is this what the Apostle Paul was thinking about as he begins teaching about or warning about the works of the flesh here in the book of Galatians? This is not the only place where he focuses on that. Uh, you can write this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, as he writes that letter to the church at Corinth. He also focuses on some of the same things. And actually he goes as far as to say as the people that practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 10. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Also in the letter that he writes to the church at Rome, the book of Romans, chapter 1, he lists some of the very same things. And the apostle John, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, when he wrote the book of the Revelation, Revelation 21, he writes some of the very same stuff. So I think all of these uh, teachings that they're giving here 
uh, actually stem from what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Here's what John had to say in Revelation 21, verse 8. He said, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So why do the biblical writers give these specific lists? It's not like that a Bible-believing, Bible-reading follower of Christ doesn't know that these things are bad, these things are sinful, these things are harmful, these things are uh, acts that should be repented of and should be avoided at all costs. I think that there's a very specific reason uh, that the Apostle Paul, several reasons that the Apostle Paul highlights this list in the book of Galatians. So take your mind back to that time and that culture. Just think about the Greek culture that was embedded in that area, the Roman culture. All of these cultures kind of loose, kind of uh, free-flowing. They practice some of these very things. And what is the Apostle Paul trying to do here? He's trying to establish a first-century church that doesn't know any better. The whole purpose of writing this letter to the church at Galatia was to warn them about things that they should avoid. He's trying to take them out of one culture and bring them to a time to where they can be followers of Christ, adhering to what the Bible has to say for Christ's followers as well. And I think what we can take out of that as well is when you minister to someone in this time and in this culture today, a lot of these things that we're fixing to look at, they're going to say, well, that's not harmful. There's nothing wrong with that. That's because they haven't been taught any better. Beginning in verse 19, let's read through this passage and then we'll break it down and unpack it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in your outline, I kind of uh, use the same word twice, but I'm going to get you to scratch out one word. And the question that I got starting your outline, that word exposing, uh, just write listing down there. What was the goal of the Apostle Paul for listing the works of the flesh? I think there's four specific reasons to expose, to evaluate, to eliminate, and to empower. This is what he's doing for this first century church. He's saying if there's any of this in your church, you need to expose it. Think about our passage from our Sunday school lesson this morning, Acts chapter 4 and 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't trying to make a public display out of them. They weren't trying to embarrass them. What were they trying to do? They were trying to set a standard for the first century church. 
Lying is wrong, cheating is wrong, stealing is wrong. And here's what's going to happen if you're guilty of those things. They knew it was going on. The Holy Spirit told them it was going on. And when they brought Ananias up before the council, the other apostles, they gave him a chance to repent of the sin that he had committed. But what they were trying to do is trying to make an example to the rest of the church. They didn't want it to continue on. And I think that's what the apostle Paul is doing here with this list. We're going to look at the first four all together because the first four, uh, it may be three in your translation that you're using, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. They all have to do with sexual sins. Some of this stuff gets pretty graphic. The more you uh, research it, the more you look at the original language, the more you look at what was going on in the church, and the more you look at what's going on in our culture today, sometimes it creeps into the church. And I think for us to really, really expose it, we just need to be honest. We need to let our youth know that these things are wrong. And we need to let anyone that we know that wants to be a follower of Christ, that there is a high standard for you, especially when it comes to sexual purity. Paul says here in Galatians 5 that they basically shouldn't have to make this list because they are evident. That word evident right there, he says they are well known, they are clearly known, and they are visible. The works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. We're going to go through all four points, and we're going to look at those words individually. The next thing he wants to see is he wants to evaluate what's going on. He wants to give them this list so they can evaluate what's going on in their church. Not only does he say you need to expose these things, you need to be able to recognize them, but you also need to be able to evaluate what's going on. To give your church a good, healthy checkup, let's evaluate what's going on. Are any of these things taking place in your church? Are any of these things taking place in our church? Let's expose them. Let's get rid of them. Let's raise the standard. Let's raise the bar. To evaluate something, you've got to closely put it under a microscope. You've got to look at it from every single angle. So a doctor has to identify the source of a disease before he can treat it. You go into a doctor, you say, hey, I'm not feeling good, something's wrong. You give him a few symptoms, but he doesn't just write you a prescription for some medicine without first taking a closer look at what's going on. He wants to evaluate your situation and your symptoms is your blood pressure high is your temperature high what's going on let's take some blood work let's analyze it let's see if there's anything out of balance in your blood work but the doctor has to identify first the source of the disease he doesn't just treat the symptoms he wants to be holistic about it he says let's look at the the whole picture and see what's going on inside and out. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He says, look, you need to examine your whole church. You need to evaluate it. You need to look at each and every one of these things on this list. Expose them and get rid of them 
when you can. So when you take your car to a mechanic, that mechanic, he doesn't just say, okay, well, let's rotate your tires and uh, balance them and send you on your way. No, there's something more going on. My brakes are squealing. Uh, my front end's shimmying. There, there's something else going on. It's a little bit more uh, than my tires. I'm driving a Chevrolet. I got problems. <laughs> but he's not going to just do one thing and say, that's going to take care of all of your problems. We went the other day, and, man, they got an iPad-looking deal now that they hook up to your car, and all of a sudden you turn it on, and it shoots them up. All these. This is what it most likely is. It gives you an analysis of the, of the engine, excuse me, how it's running, what's going on, and these are the things that it could be. Let's do a, a, an even more closer diagnostic on your automobile and see what's going on before we even get into it. So that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's running a diagnostic on this church. He knows his church. He knows their heartbeat. He knows their background. He knows who's been coming through and teaching them. And he says, let's evaluate what's going on real, real closely and see if you're guilty of any of these things because if you practice these things, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. Here's the application for us. If we're going to pray for people to be delivered of some of these habits, some of these sins, we need to know and we need to understand what it is that they need to be delivered from. Not only treat the symptom, but what is the source? The source is sin, S-I-N. Yes, I know that. But what happened in their life to bring this sin into their life? And how can we pray for them more effectively? What are their addictions? How can we help them? How can we pray for them? First of all, do they know it is a sin? Have they identified it or do they think that there's nothing wrong with this practice? You've got to evaluate the situation and what's going on. Get their testimony. Get their background. Where do they come from? What happened in their uh, family life? What happened in their upbringing? Is there something else connected to this that I can help them with? I've got to understand what's going on to evaluate their situation, have this gospel conversation with them, and then begin praying for them more effectively along the area of what they're dealing with. Next, the Apostle Paul says to eliminate these sins, you've got to be able to identify. I'm giving you this sin, so you, uh, this list of, of works of the flesh so you can eliminate it from your church. It has to be removed completely. We talked about it already, but that's exactly what um, Peter and, and John and the rest of the apostles were wanting to do with Ananias and Sapphira. We've got to eliminate this so it doesn't happen. If we don't eliminate it, everybody's going to think it's okay and it's going to continue to grow and it's going to get out of it. We want a growing, healthy church. And when something like this takes place, that inhibits the growth. In the Old Testament, you see some of the laws that were written in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. They had a way of handling a rebellious child. If the parents couldn't take care of it, they brought him to the council. If the council couldn't take care of it, they brought him outside of the city limits and what they do to him? They stoned him. Was that to be cruel? No. That was to set an example. This is what happens. We've got to get this out of the city. We don't want it happening anymore. And the Apostle Paul is saying, especially here in these first four, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness, 
This doesn't involve just one person. This involves multiple people. And if it continues, it's going to get out of hand. It's going to lower our level of righteousness in the church, and it's going to inhibit the growth of the church. We've got to identify it. We've got to expose it. We've got to evaluate it, and we've got to eliminate it. Earlier in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives an analogy of what happens. He's talking about leaven. Uh, This isn't the only place that he talks about it. He talks about it in the book of Corinthians too. He says you've got to get the leaven out of the lump or it's going to continue to grow. It's going to infect the whole lump. We want to be unleavened bread. We want to be without sin. Why do we want to eliminate that? Because Peter said this, 1 Peter 4, 17. He says judgment isn't going to begin with the outside world. They don't know any better. They're lost. They're sinners. They're doing what sinners are going to do. Peter said that judgment begins in the house of God. And if we haven't eliminated it from the house of God, guess what? We're in trouble. And the fourth thing, the the reason that I think that Apostle Paul gives this list of the work of the flesh is to empower. If you can identify it, if you can expose it, if you can eliminate it, you have been empowered as a disciple, as an apologist, and as someone who can help another person that is involved in these habitual sins. In your apologetic effort and in our discipleship ministry, we need to know and understand ourselves if we are to help someone who has fallen into sin. We need to be empowered in the area of understanding the source of these sins and also how to deal with them in our lives and the lives of others. He says they're evident. He says there's no denying it. He said the works of the flesh, they're noticeable to anyone that sees them, but I'm going to give you a specific list to help you identify them clearly. And another thing he's doing, he's putting it down in writing. He said, look, If you forget this list, here it is. You can refer back to it. And that's what the word of God is for. That's why God has given us these letters, these epistles, so we can go back to them time and time again. We can look over them. We can pray over them. We can pray through them. You can't say, I I forgot that this was a sin because here it is in black and white, sometimes in red. So the four sins, the four works of the flesh that he starts this list off with. Adultery. It's a Greek word, mokia, and it, it means illicit intercourse. Plain and simple, adultery. So in biblical days, what contributed to this sin? Most of the researchers and commentators believe that the plays that they had at that time The banquets that they had and slavery all contributed to the sin of adultery. This moral deterioration in their culture. And you think about it, they didn't have the internet back in those days. They didn't have movies back in those days. They would have plays, live actors. And a lot of times what they would portray would be adulterous situations like the one the Apostle Paul is referring to here. First one of the list. So also the laws of marriage in those days and the laws against adultery prior to the New Testament 
most of the times they were against the wife more than they were against the husband. When we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there was a shift in that. It was no longer a matter of only civil law. And why is that? Because in a figurative sense in the New Testament, the New Testament uses the word and it only acts committed between husband and wife. Not only did the New Testament move that over away from that, it also brought it into a religious unfaithfulness to God as well. Here's an example, James 4, verses 4 through 5. James says this, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's not just portraying it as a broken up relationship between a husband and a wife. He's saying this is a broken relationship between a child of God and God the Father. They've cheated on him, basically, is what he's saying. He says, whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Folks, we, we serve a God who loves us. We serve a God who cares for us. But we also serve a God who is very, very jealous. He wants our full 100% attention. He doesn't want just weekend visits. He wants all of your heart all of the time. And when you go chasing after other idols and foreign gods, you are committing spiritual adultery. That is a shift that we see from the Old Testament to the New Testament as it talks about the act of adultery. We also see it come into play as Jesus is teaching through his three years of earthly ministry. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery, and they are testing Jesus. They are pushing him to the limit. They're wanting to see if he will adhere to the old Mosaic law. They want to see if he's aware of what was written in the Old Testament about the laws of adultery. But Jesus' ministry was one of love and mercy and grace. He said, I didn't come to uh, break the law. I didn't come to make little of the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law. But his number one attribute that he shared with everyone, no matter where he went, was love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And here was his point that he made when they brought this woman caught in the very act of adultery. They said, who sinned, her or her husband? Who should be punished for this? And if you'll remember, Jesus stooped down and he started writing something in the dirt. And after a few moments of thinking about it, he got up and he looked around at the crowd. He said, you know what? We're all sinners. All of you who have brought this woman here, you're just as guilty as she is. And here was his comment. He said, let he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And at that point, her adultery was forgiven by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And one by one, it says, they let go of their stones and they walked away. 
And as the scene plays out, there's nobody left there but Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And he said, woman, where is your accusers? They had all gone. There's also a picture in the New Testament that is not seen in the Old Testament. As far as the relationship between a husband and a wife. We also see this image emerging in the New Testament of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. And I think that maybe this is something that the Apostle Paul, as this list plays out, this is something that he's alluding to as well. He's saying the church needs to be devoted, wholehearted, and committed to Jesus Christ as the groom. So next on the list is fornication. This is a very interesting word in the original Greek language. It is a Greek word, porneia, is where we get our word pornography from. And the definition in the original language is sexual immorality, sexual sin of a general kind, whoredom, unfaithfulness to God, to prostitute or to lead into fornication or to whore after other gods. Kind of carries the same uh, principle with it as spiritual adultery. So in the Old Testament, the common practice was temple prostitution. That is kind of where uh, this word derives from. And in the Old Testament, the warnings are given in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 12 against the religious practices of other nations, this temple prostitutes. And he's talking about the negative impact that they would have on the children of Israel as they began going into the land of Canaan. The most common in the Old Testament was the God Asherah. He was the fertility God. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16, it tells a story of King Asa as he begins a spiritual reformation of the nation of Israel. One of his first was to move, uh, remove his grandmother, uh, Maka, as queen mother, and he went as far as cutting down the obscene images that she had installed. She was promoting sexual immorality. She had gotten it from these foreign nations that practiced temple prostitution. What about for us? As we're looking at this in a biblical context, as we're looking at this where it came from in the Old Testament and now into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is talking about fornication, the Greek word porneia. Why is it important for us to identify and remove some of these sins like this and help people to overcome them? I'm going to give you a few statistics on what's going on in our land. Maybe you've done the research on it. Maybe you haven't. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. What's going on in our world today? What's going on in our nation today? Let's talk about pornography in America for just a moment. Why would we need to discuss this in church? Once again, if you're going to minister to someone and if you're going to pray for someone, you need to understand the problem, not just the symptom, not just what's going on. And eventually... 
if you get into enough spiritual conversations, this issue, this sin is going to surface at some point in time. And unless you know how bad it is, you're not going to be able to relate to it. So there's a website, it's a internet filter called Covenant Eyes. And in 2006, they, they brought some statistics on pornography in America. So every second in the United States, back in the year 2006, I'm sure it's much, much worse than this by now. Back in 2006, every second, there were 28,258 people viewing pornography. One in five mobile searches was a search for some type of pornography on the internet. These are some mind-blowing statistics I'm about to get into here. It's not just adults either. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with friends. They don't know it's a problem. They don't see the issue with it. They don't know it's a sin. That's why it's listed here in this list in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. The greatest concentration of users of internet pornography is between the ages of 15 and 24. Here's the most scary one. Here's why when I see a young kid with either a cell phone playing a game, an iPad or something, Here's what's scary about that. 15% of all teens polled said that they first saw online porn at age 10 or younger. God help us. And we wonder why we have issues in our culture today. The average age reported first viewing pornography of all ages was at the age of 10. So much for the age of innocence, right? So if you see parents, if you see this on this list, if you know it's a problem, are you going to warn them about it? The only way to change the tide in our culture today is to begin warning about people about dangers such as this. If we remain silent about it, kind of like they did back in those times, the fall of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. They exist no more. Most of the times, those empires fell because of some kind of sexual immorality. And we're headed in that direction right now here in the United States of America. They had another statistic that they brought out. They're, they're talking about virtual reality back in those days. The little goggles you put on, it makes it look like you're actually there. Uh, they weren't even thinking about AI back in those days. This was written in 2006, but they said they estimated by the year 2025 with the invention of virtual reality, here's how much money would be spent. Video games alone, $1.4 billion with the invention of virtual reality. Anything connected with the NFL, anything related to NFL content, $1.23 billion, but pornography was right up there at $1 billion. This is not a small thing that I'm talking about here. This is huge. This is enormous. And you wonder why we can't get kids into church these days? 
They've got something else on their mind and it's not good. And until we stand up and speak out about it, until we begin warning parents the danger of what's going on with their kids, why am I so adamant about these little kids with iPads and cell phones, even though they're playing games? Guess what? It only takes one misspelled word and they're exposed to something that they should never, ever see. That's all it takes. If you see parents that are letting their kids, especially the little kids, play them, ask them, do you have an internet filter on that? Do you have some type of preventative device to keep them from going to places that they shouldn't be on the internet? The works of the flesh are evident. The Apostle Paul is giving a crystal clear warning to this church at Galatia. Hey, here's some things that you need to look out for. When you see them, you need to expose them. If you think they're going on, if you suspect anything, you need to evaluate everything that's going on in your church. And then you need to eliminate it because you don't want it growing. You don't want it getting out of hand. First of all, you know it's going to infect your church. It's going to infect your city. And it'll infect your entire nation, just like what's going on in the United States of America today. And he's telling them this to be able to empower them. He's giving them this letter, this written letter, so that they can go back and refer to it and look at it. Let it be a guideline to prevent these things from happening in this first century church. So for us, why do we need to know these things? What does the Bible say about what we should do and how we should warn others? Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 through 12. Here's the warning that it gives for us. It says, to deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. We're to give them a crystal clear warning. Hey, you're on the wrong road. You're on a path of destruction. You're going to a slaughter. You've got to stop what you're doing or it's going to end in destruction. Verse 12, here's the key. If you say, surely we did not know this. Why is Paul giving this list? So they will know that this is wrong. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? According to his deeds. Guess what the apostle Paul is fixing to start talking about in this letter to the church at Galatia. He's going to say, what you sow is exactly what you reap. And if you're sowing adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness, you're not going to reap godly things. You're going to reap things that will bring swift destruction upon your church and your nation. Ezekiel had something to say about giving people a fair warning as well. Ezekiel chapter 3 Beginning in verse 16. Why should we study these individual, uh, these sins individually and so closely? Why should we understand the original meaning to them? To give people a fair warning. We have become the watchmen on the wall. We have been enlightened. We have been giving knowledge. We have been empowered 
with the ability to minister to people who are struggling through these. If we're struggling through them ourselves, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, get over it, get through it, get rid of it. Don't practice this any longer because it is a sin and it will bring destruction. Ezekiel had this to say, beginning in verse 16. He says, now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. To save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. He's talking to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is to give this warning to the nation of Israel, but the principle for us is still the same. We now have knowledge of things that will be detrimental to someone if they continue to habitually practice them. And if we don't speak up about it, guess what? They're headed to a path of destruction. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Hmm. That's interesting. You see someone that's practicing anything on this list. You see someone who is practicing habitual sin. You give them a clear warning. Guess what? It's on them. But what the Lord is saying to Ezekiel here is if you see someone doing that and you don't warn them, you have knowledge of it, you've been enlightened, you've seen this list, their blood is on your hand. That raises the accountability a whole nother level, don't it? Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. So if you do give the warning, the man turns from his sin and repents of it, guess what? You delivered yourself. You've also helped out that person as well. Remember what I said when we began this study of the book of Galatians. What is the purpose of apologetics? What is the purpose of witnessing? You're not out to win an argument. You're out to win a soul. You've now been empowered. Based on what the Apostle Paul says here in the book of Galatians, there's a purpose for it. There's a reason for it. There's a lot to benefit out of breaking it down and studying it. Because in Galatians 6, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul says, you're going to reap exactly what you sow. So if you're not sowing these works of the flesh, you're not going to reap them. If you're exposing them, you can help eliminate them. But the most important thing is to help a person realize the depth of their sin not just to expose their sin, but to also to show them there's a God that wants to forgive you. 
of these things if you've committed them. Everything on this list that we've talked about from beginning to end in Galatians 5, the blood of Jesus Christ will wash it clean no matter what it is, no matter how long they have been entrapped by that sin. Jesus Christ said he came to set the captives free and give liberty to those who have been imprisoned. And if you know someone who is entrapped by one of these sins, don't be afraid to help them out. Don't be afraid to confront them with it. If you are fully aware of it and you don't, guess what? You're on the responsible end of it then. You say, but Brother Tracy, I just, uh, I don't want to push them away. (laughs) I don't want to intimidate them. What are you going to do? You're going to send them to another hell? You're going to send them to a second hell? They're already headed on a path to destruction. The only thing that you could do is take a chance of turning them and helping them to find mercy and grace at the foot of the cross. Thomas Watson had this quote to say. He said, the eye is made for both seeing and weeping. He says, sin must first be seen before it can be wept. And I think the reason that sin is so prevalent in our culture today is because the church has remained silent on some of these topics. And I think the reason the Apostle Paul is giving this list to the church at Galatia is because they had probably remained silent on a lot of it. They didn't know that they, how to handle it and they didn't know that they were supposed to handle it. But my hope and my prayer is that we will be able to go out not do it out of hatred, not do it to make a spectacle of them, but to go out and confront someone and say, hey, look, you need Jesus in your life. <laughs> I see what's going on. The works of the flesh are evident. They're noticeable. They can't be concealed. They are visible and clearly seen. And when we identify them, when we see them, when the Lord reveals that to us, You go and help that person. You show the love of Jesus by introducing them to a Savior who loves them and died for them. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight just thanking you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for this powerful letter that you've given to us from the Apostle Paul. And I pray, Lord God, that we'll look over this list of the works of the flesh. Lord, it seems pretty bleak here in our country, but I think that there's hope. I think there is a generation that has potential of serving you and loving you and being bold in their faith. But I pray, Lord God, that as we can uh, connect with that younger generation, that we'll build relationships that will last for all eternity. We'll teach them, Lord, the things that we've learned, both from our mistakes and our victories. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would continue empowering us and equipping us like never before. And we just thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you're going to do. I thank you for your word, Lord God, everything that you reveal to us through. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every day 
our eyes will be open to the fact that this world needs you now more than ever. And I pray, Lord God, that you'll raise up a generation, that you'll raise up a group of warriors, an army of believers who not only diligently follow you with their lives, but they're in pursuit of seeking others that you want to save. And Lord, if there's someone here who's struggling with a habitual sin, Lord, I just pray that you'll give them the boldness to find an accountability partner, someone that will pray for them and with them and help them through their struggle, Lord. Lord, we need each other. We need to be praying for each other. But most of all, we need to let this world know that Jesus saves and that there's hope in him. There's forgiveness at the cross and his blood was shed for their sins. We just ask all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.